but not broken. With host Patrick Scroggins. As a U.S. Army attack helicopter pilot deployed in Iraq, Patrick faced a devastating crash, which resulted in him dying, losing a leg, and a slew of broken bones. Patrick's story of rehabilitation has helped others to overcome their own obstacles. Each week, Patrick recounts stories of inspiration and interviews guests who have overcome remarkable obstacles. This is Wounded But Not Broken with your host, Patrick Scroggins. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Wounded But Not Broken yet on another Monday night. I hope everybody's day was not as long as mine. Um, But tonight we have a show for you that is very captivating, very intriguing. There's going to be probably some questions asked that can't be answered. Um, It has to do with one of the nation's nation's most secret uh, military bases. And so tonight we have Mr. Jerry Fields on the line. So let's just dive right into this. So let's let's just start back at uh, you know the beginning of your military career and why you decided to go the route that you went. Just kind of walk us through the, the beginning of your uh, of your career in the military, and we'll get to we'll get to the real juicy stuff later on. Okay. Yeah, as far as um, joining the Air Force, I uh, it was kind of funny. I decided at nine years old that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I was watching uh, Alan Shepard go up in space. And as the, la- the aircraft were landing in um, down in Florida, I wanted, I decided uh, normal kids want to be a pilot, but I decided I wanted to do maintenance. So at nine years old, that's when I decided in uh, 1972 is when I actually went in the Air Force. And um, I got stationed at uh, Las Vegas, my first duty assignment, and then over to Thailand for Vietnam, working on F-111s. I, and back to Vegas. So I worked on 111s for about 10 years. Um, while I was in um, Lake Neath, England, some people came over there and they were talking about uh, special assignments, which I was pretty intrigued. And um, after I left there, they got a hold of me and asked me if I wanted to be a part of that, which was the Red Eagles. And um, so I, I got into the Red Eagles. I worked up there in the squadron for six years up on the test site for 10 and, um, and then retired. And that's about it. I would, there's a lot of stuff in the middle of there, but that's a quick overview. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. So let's just go to the, as you, I don't know if you know, but I'm, I'm a pilot as well. It's a uh, fixed wing and rotary wing. So with F-111, F-111 was one of my favorite jets as a kid. How was it to be around? How was it working on them and, and being, to me, that's like an iconic aircraft. I mean, it, it didn't get a lot of publicity, oh. but I think it, it's well, it awesome was like, aircraft. um it was the premier aircraft in Vietnam, or that's what we thought of it anyway. And when I first came in, I was so angry because I wanted to work on F-4s, and they put me on F-111s. So when I got there, I thought, well, you know, they did me wrong. But as it turned out, I loved the aircraft. I worked it for 10 years. I worked uh, as a crew chief. I worked in repair and reclamation, uh, crash recovery, all heavy maintenance. And uh, so I pretty much worked the jet top to bottom. It was great. Yeah, did you ever get to fly in one? No, I always wanted to, and uh, I never had the opportunity. Oh man, that's unfortunate. That would have been a, would have been a dream, especially the so way you I mentioned. Worked, uh, I did everything. Yeah, how was the maintenance on it? Was it was it a, a lot of maintenance on that airplane? There was. Uh, there were certain things that, uh, like say throttle cables, for instance. Um, I would have to go out and check them for pressure, and if they're bad, you know, they, they stress the whole length of the aircraft. 
depaneling all the way back and taking that thing out took a couple of days. It was, uh, that was one of the hardest, I can't say hardest job, but most time consuming. And there were other, yeah. other things on there, like the spikes, for instance, uh, trying to get in the intake to take it out was, um, a chore, but, um, I actually, I, I loved the jet the whole time I worked on it. So I'm assuming that you were with the, in a unit that, that uh, deployed a lot or flew a lot of the jets in Vietnam. Is that correct? We did. I was stationed at Takli, Thailand, and we flew missions. Actually, we were flying in there, but um, later, towards the end of the war, when I was there, uh, we were flying uh, Cambodia, uh, into Cambodia. and I don't think we were supposed to be doing that, but that's what we did. And um, <laughs> so, I mean, they said we weren't, but um, so uh, so that's what I did. Yeah, we flew missions into Vietnam and surrounding area, I guess. Gotcha. So, and then you, from there, so at what point did you go to, um, to back to Las Vegas to the special unit? I guess I can just say it. It was Area 51, right? Um, actually, I wasn't in Area 51. Um, um, there was a... Uh, uh, 22 was the site. Kind of where I, I get worried when I start talking about up there because being top secret for 10 years, they scare you to death. But, um, but yeah, I wasn't actually in Area 51 at that when I got hired up there. I was hired into um, to work in 22. Okay. And so, what uh, what unit is what, is it like the 4477th or something? Yes, 4477th Red Eagles. All right. And so can you, can you talk about that? Like what is the, some unclassified mission stuff that you could talk about, about the, about that unit? I can just tell you what we did. Um, our whole job, you know, in the beginning, uh, we were very secret. And, uh, so we didn't even wear, uh, uniforms up there and we would have to fly to work and then fly home. So we'd be up there four days and then fly back. And, um, that our our job supposedly were uh, testing paint schemes on aircraft. Uh, I, that's about all I can remember of that. But our actual job, what we were doing, is teaching uh, American pilots how to fly and beat um, Russian MiGs. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll have some more follow-up on that. So, but it was called the Red Eagles or Red Hat. Well, uh, the Red Eagles were, uh, is the uh, term. There, there is a red hat as well, um, and, and basically we all wore red hats anyway. So, as far as I remember, that's oh. why we were called that. But um, I got you. The forty-four seventy-seventh is Red Eagles. Gotcha. And then the hints that the red Red Eagles are red hats because you wore red hats. Yeah. So to get into the to get into that that unit, uh, I don't know how the Air Force works. But is it something that you apply for, or did they approach you? Or they approached us um, when I was in uh, Lake and Heath. Uh, a team came over there, and they said they were hiring for a secret uh, position. They couldn't tell us what it was or anything. Of course, they were just saying, if you're interested in working top secret, um, you know, we might be interested in you. And I believe uh, one of the reasons they hit us was because we were on 111s with sweep wings, and the 23, which we worked on, also had sweep wings, and uh, the systems are very, uh, very similar. Gotcha. So did the the pilots? I mean, I'm, I'm sure you closely interacted with the pilots in that unit. Did they uh, 
Where did, did they kind of the selection process the same way for them? In, I'm not really sure. Um, a lot of a lot of the selection was done by um, word of mouth per se, because they wanted to hire the best they could hire. I mean, because of what we did, and um, you had to pretty much know what you were doing, whether you're maintenance or pilots or whatever. They wanted the best of the best, so people would would say this guy or girl. We had women as well, and um, knows his stuff, or, or it, and it was like that. And then then they would be looked at, and and it would be decided on whether they were coming up or not. Gotcha. So so I'm assuming. I mean, what what you were doing, you were teaching American pilots how to fight and fly. The MIG. So I'm assuming that 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 unit had a uh, a life expectancy. So what, what, how long did that unit exist? Oh, that started in '77, ended in '88, and I was there from '82 gotcha. to '87. How many different how many different MIGs did you all uh, have to train with? We had three. We had a MiG-17, 21, and 23. Do you know how they were acquired? Um, I'm just asking. You don't have to answer. I'm just asking. We would, um, um, <coughs> well, we would have to go, as soon as we, you know, we knew where we could get them, we went and got them. I'll put it that way. But, um, but you know what countries use them and where you could possibly go to do that best. Um, yeah, that's one of the questions I don't like to answer. Yeah, gotcha. So I'm assuming the reason they disbanded that unit is just because uh, with time and probably technology and uh, there's no more use for training for the, that sort of MIG, right? Or is there another reason why they disbanded the unit? I think budget was a big reason. But um, but all all of it combined, you know, and then uh, – but I do believe budget was a, a huge part of it. Gotcha. So which which one was the best mix, the 17, 21, or 23? Well, uh, I think um, the most versatile um, was probably 21. Uh, it's the one I worked on the most and uh, probably the one we flew the most. Um, the, the 17 was pretty old, and um, I didn't have much time on that one at all. When I first got up there, we were, we were slowing that down. And um, and the 23 was uh, it was a good jet, uh, fast, and um, and I worked on it um, quite a bit, especially in the flight controls and wing sweep system. Gotcha. So I'm assuming that you had to go. How did you, how did you get trained up on the MIG? Well, uh, when uh, when I got there, the guys that were there before me. Uh, trained me. Uh, they were training, and I, I uh, my job was um, well. Let me back up a little bit. When uh, when the mix when we first got them and we first started, everyone did everything. There wasn't any specialties. Everybody's a crew chief. Everybody worked the jets. They did everything. In the real Air Force, uh, you have a crew chief on a jet. You have flight control people, electronics, avionics. You know, you've got hydraulics egress, well, we did it all. And as I got there, they wanted us to get closer to the Air Force uh, way of doing things. So we started breaking down into shops. And um, 
I took over um, R&R, which is repair and reclamation. I, uh, I had crash recovery. So I did all the heavy maintenance per se. If a jet had to be taken apart, um, like there was sometimes we would take them apart and box them, you know, if they were bent and couldn't fly, we'd put them in museums. And I would go over and take those apart or help the crew chiefs do it. And, um, and I ended up also, I would do certain jobs and they would say, well, you know how to take the seat out. We don't have any egress people. Go ahead and do it. So I did that. But that's what made the job so good was um, the ability to work on the whole jet instead of pieces, if you if you know what I mean there. Right. Yeah, I mean, instead of just being specialized in one aspect of the, whether it be avionics, like you said, or engine or airframe or power plant, you were you were right. the expert on all, on the whole thing. I don't, yeah, expert I mean, might be stretching it, but we did that. And see, and when we're doing it, when I was in there doing that, as well as everyone else, uh, because we didn't read Russian, we wrote our own books. So um, we would we would get into a job, and a lot of it had already been done by the time I got there. But if I'm if I was trying to read something that somebody else had written, and I'm doing the job, and I see a better way, or didn't quite understand, we would rewrite. So we kind of wrote our own stuff, and and that's how. As far as training goes, uh, it's all hands-on, and we were all jet mechanics before we got there. I'd been a jet mechanic uh, ten years by the time I got up there, and um, and that's that's why they pick who they do. People that can do a lot of things, not just one part. And um, so, um, so that's to me, it was the it was the best job of my career. It's uh, it was the best job in the whole Air Force. Right. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So. Right now, we're going to take a, a quick, short break, and a word from our sponsors when we come back. Uh, we're going to dive more into this intriguing uh, career that Mr. Fields had. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? 
Filing a VA claim is complicated, it's cumbersome, and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggins. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Mr. Fields, i got a question. What's the difference between area, or 22 and 51? Area, like, I'm assuming it's Area 22 and Area 51. Okay. Um, I'll tell you um, what I – okay. I, I, like I said, I have a hard time talking about all this secret stuff. But uh, the difference primarily is that um, one area uh, will – prepare a jet to be operational and the other one works the asset as an operational aircraft. We fly it. We do our job and the hats or the other section puts it together. Gotcha. I guess that's kind of the easiest way I can say that. Okay. Yeah. I, I won't, I won't fry anyone. I know it's uh, I know there's, I know you're limited, but uh, so what was it like, you know, getting in and out because you, you, you go, I mean, everybody, it's public knowledge that there's a flight that leaves San Diego every morning, flies out there and you do, you know, is, is it a pretty extensive process to security wise? We actually flew out of Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. Okay. Nellis. That's yeah. right. And, I, I was mixed in. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a, but it, we had a terminal on the base. And then all of us, uh, say like Tuesday morning, um, that's when I did. We, we, you could go up on Monday as well, but, uh, Tuesday morning, I would go in, uh, to the terminal, say around four o'clock in the morning, and then they would fly us up on site. And we just get off the airplane and go to work. And then we had our rooms up there. First, there's the double white trailers when I first got there. But as time went on, they built a, um, uh, we called it man camp. It was, um, more like a little base. Uh, down uh, probably five miles down the road away from where our jets were, and down there we had uh, we had our dorms, we had chow halls, we had a swimming pool. Um, it was it was very very nice. But the first um, the first couple of years I was up there, we lived in trailers, uh, double wide, right right. But we we would leave the jets and then just walk out of the hangar down to our trailers, and uh, and then we would work all, all all week and fly back Friday night. And it was so it's pretty was a lot, you just go to the terminal and get on the jet. Was a lot of the work that you all did done at night? No. No, ours were or um our work was in daytime. Okay. I'm assuming a lot no, of flying maybe was done at night. But well later, um, you know, when I left there I went down to um to work on the stealth program, the one seventeen, and that was night flying. 
But we flew daytime, gotcha. they flew nighttime. And that was out of 51? No, that was 22. Gotcha. Sorry. This, it's, it's, this is really intriguing to me. I mean, you see all these specials on TV about, you know, about uh, 22 and 51. And when, you don't see so much about 22. I don't, I don't know if that's common knowledge, but 51, you know. <laughs> Where people, I mean, where I, people try I get to... into the, yeah, I get into the questioning, and I'm like, just how much am I allowed to say? I know there's a lot of it, and there's been two books written about the Red Eagles, and there's a lot of information. I read both books. Uh, still, when I'm talking to other Red Eagles, and when we have reunions and things like that, there's still things that we don't talk about. So that's why I'm kind of hesitant. Yeah, for sure. And if I ask a question that you know you can't say, then just tell me to shut up or something. That's right. You know, I don't want to get anybody in trouble because, you know, you no, took I an oath and, and I respect it. But uh, so, but anyway, I was getting at the, you know, all the specials that's been on Area 51 where people try to go and look in and, you know, they got all the motion sensors. It's probably one of the most secured places on the planet, um, you know, and that's for a reason, you know, I uh, people, I mean, even I'm intrigued about it, but I can go to sleep at night knowing that, you know, there's things that I don't need to know. There's things that go on that I don't need to know, that I just know it's in my best interest to that our governments and uh, and people are doing them things for us to keep us safe. That's how yeah, I there was that's always people I trying to um, there was always people trying to see us, um, but we would know. Um, there were times where we had the jets out and um, uh, out on the apron, and um, and we were been, and we were told, you know, let's put the jets away. There's people trying to come up the other side of the mountain or whatever, you know, they're trying to see the jets. And uh, so we, uh, we would put them away, but if they, um, the way they've got that place secured up there, uh, they know all the movements of anyone trying to get anywhere near. Oh yeah. Yeah. Within probably 50 or 60 miles, you know, ahead of time. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 It's now, probably we have, one of the most secure places on the uh, we, uh, we would have airplanes get lost up there private airplanes um and i remember one day they had one come down and they we launched our jets our chase jets up and forced them down and landed and then they put black bags on their heads and take them away it's uh even i mean it might be an accident it might not be but we'd have people that come into that airspace that they're not allowed to fly in right yeah that's not an accident you want to make as a pilot <laughs> yeah it but, may um, be but that, that's not the way it's uh, perceived yeah. So back back to kind of what you were doing. So you were working on the uh, MiG seventeen, twenty one, and twenty three, and you. Yeah. I'm I'm assuming you you got to well, you, and you worked on you know F one eleven. You were on the F one seventeen. You were on. I'm sure you worked on a variety of different American uh, built aircraft. At, at that time, what was the build quality like versus the Americans? Uh, the MiGs are pretty old, uh, old technology. Um, they're easy to work on. I thought, um, you know, we would just uh, work them like any other jet. That, that's the way we always figure. Jets are jets. The technology of the American jets are way superior to what we worked on. And um, and but we um, we would look at them, and sometimes you know you just kind of shake your head and think, you know, this thing is is old, or it's just the technology wasn't uh, it wasn't even close. So. Um, Definitely, American jets are better. They, in every aspect, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, as they still are, I think. Uh, I'm kind of biased, yeah. but yeah, um, me too. So, what were some 
what were some unusual things about the MIG? Like, as far as you say that, that Americans are so much more advanced, like, what do you mean? Well, uh, like, um, like the, um, the glass tubes that they had in avionics, for instance, um, you know, we, we lost that a, a long time ago. And, um, and the, um, another strange thing was they had nose brakes, which we don't have. And, um, Oh, it's um, it, it, even the gauges and everything in the cockpit. It's just old school. Um, nothing. Uh, um, maybe they have it now more advanced, like we do, uh, where everything's digital and all that. But there was nothing like that. It's just gauges and regular old type of um, technology. It's like sitting in an old one fifty or something. Yeah. What's uh, what at, at that time? I mean, now I'm pretty pretty familiar with our targeting systems and stuff. What kind of targeting system did we have on it, like an F4 in that day? I'm not really sure to tell you the truth. I um, if I think about that, I might have an answer for you, but I, I I'm drawing blank on that. That's okay. It was just a gee whiz question. What what kind of targeting system did the MIG have? As far as radar. Is that what yeah. you're talking about? Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, well, the um, the uh, 23, I believe uh, that's the um, the first one that had uh, look down, um, shoot down type of radar, um, and uh, for um, for a, like a like a visual range missile or whatever. Um, the 23 had was I'm, I'm pretty sure the first one that had uh, had the Look down capability, but uh, the, as far as locking on and all that, I believe it's been so long I can't hardly remember. Um, but I know that their capability it wasn't the same as ours. It wasn't that advanced. But I know the twenty three was uh, was the uh, the better of all of them <clears throat> as far as targeting. Gotcha. Yeah, and so that's and that's kind of like even today. I mean, stuff is so much more advanced today than it was back then. I mean, today it's insane what what our airplanes can do. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. From the edge of the atmosphere, it can hit a put a missile through a dumpster. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, um, I was watching a show so, the other day, not long ago, on a twenty-two targeting and what they're capable of is just amazing. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. A buddy of mine actually flies F-15s, and they go do that simulated war, you know, every year and. And he told me that uh, one F-22 killed his whole squadron. They never even saw him. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty amazing. And, no, and nowhere in sight. You know, they're way far away. Right, yeah. They didn't even know he was there until it was too late. That's right. And they were, yeah. you know, they were dust. But, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And that, you know, uh, it's just, it's awesome to see how technologies and everything has come so far and, and for us to have something like that. But, you know, we always got to keep advancing it because, you know, everybody's right on our heels and they're trying to catch up to us. We're taking it. <laughs> or, yeah, we're stealing it. <laughs> but, um, so was there anything about the MiGs that you thought were superior to, to our jets? Do they, you think they, any aerodynamic features or anything like that? I really don't believe so. I uh, I don't think there was anything superior to our jets. Yeah, not that I can remember anyway. That's good to hear. Did they? They never. Uh, at the whole time you all were doing this, you you never lost a MIG. Never one. One never went down. 
Oh yes, we did. Um, I was oh. like I said, I was crash recovery, so I had to I had to pick up a couple of them. Yeah, for for mechanical reasons, I assume. Um, one of them uh, was a flame out, um, and I was actually sitting on the runway when that was coming down. Uh, flamed out, ended up crashing at the end of the runway. And the other one, uh, that was a 21, a 23 went into a flat spin. And um, and luckily, the pilot was able to get out of that aircraft, which was, was amazing. I mean, you, you're a pilot, so you know you get in a flat spin, you're in trouble. And um, But he was able to, to regain some kind of control so he could eject and got out of there. Wow. Yeah, that's so pretty crazy. I think we had uh, four. I believe we lost four. I think what it was. Hmm. That's uh, yeah, you know, and I think that's an important point. You know, there's that's for the American people. You know, there's like I like I said, and that's kind of how I explain stuff to everybody when when they ask about if I you know secret stuff. You know, I'm like you know, there's so much stuff that I don't know. I don't need to know, and that and you just have to know that. You know, there's people out there doing the things that need to be done for the best interests of, of the people. And so, you know, it's it's really awesome uh, what you did. I'm sure you had a – I'm sure you have a lot of stories, and I understand why you can't tell them. But, um, yeah, and there's, you, yeah, there's think, a lot of stories. I was, I was thinking about it when um, when I was asked to do the show of, of different uh, things. And there, and, you, and you're right, there's a lot of, a lot of things, some I can't tell, um, some I – I was trying to bring some back, and I couldn't couldn't hardly think of some of them. But yeah, there was um, I was up there a long time, so there was a lot of lot of stories for sure. Yeah. Well, that being said, I I do have an important question, and I'm going to ask you before we go to break here, and you can be thinking about it while we're on break. Um, but okay. it was uh, I was doing some research too, and it has to do with the radar system on the MiG-21. In uh, for somewhere I read or was told that that was an alcohol cooled system. And so, I don't know, it, it just, that's just intriguing to me. I don't know. I'm just kind of an a airplane and military nerd, so I'm kind of asking some of these questions for me. But when we come back, I hope you can, uh, you can answer that. So right now, a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. 
high-quality printing services, and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifb.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifb.org, and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggins. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Here with uh, Jerry Fields talking about uh, his illustrious career as a maintenance technician in the Air Force and some very high-profile and secret uh, um, missions, I guess you would say, uh, or assignments would be better better suited for it. But so, Jerry, that right before we went to break, um, I don't know where I, where I read that. I might even have been talking to Mark. He might have even told me about the alcohol cold radar for the MiG twenty one. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, the uh, grain alcohol uh, to cool it down. Yes, and I've talked so to like about that myself. <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be. Did any of y'all ever try to drink it? As far as I know, we did not. But I bet the Russians do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, anything that's clear in liquor, the Russians will usually drink. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. If it's clear, they'll drink it. <laughs> One of the funniest stories I have about a Russian pilot, I was in uh, northern Iraq, and uh, a Russian uh, cargo carrier came in. I don't know if they were hauling water or whatever, but one of the pilots came off the back of it and had a big bottle of vodka in his hand. <laughs> just, I was just laughing. It was, uh, it was pretty funny. But uh, so is there... Any any like funny stories that you have from from uh, I know some of your uh, counterparts may be listening tonight. Is any any funny stories you want to reminisce about or anything you can tell us? I mean, I'm uh, um, I'm almost hesitant to ask some questions because I don't I don't want to put you in a spot. So I was just gonna see if you had anything that would was pertinent that you could tell that's funny or kind of had to do with what you were doing. Um, I can tell you. Uh, I'll tell you something that was pretty funny that we did after work as far as work on the airplanes um, not too many funny things when you're working jets um, that I can remember anyway but we would do I mean our motto was work hard and play hard so um, that's what we did we were at work we worked and um, and then uh, getting off uh, we had um, the organization was um, it was uh, Air Force Navy and Marines, and um, so uh, we would adopt some of their programs. And um, like when you make uh, when you make rank, they would um, haze you, and we would have a court, and you'd be have to go to court and do different things. And then of course, every time you um, they find you guilty, you you have to drink whatever they tell you to drink or do. So that turned into a real a real mess real quick. And then maybe uh, we would decide that um, we should do aircraft carrier landings. 
So all you got to do is wet a carpet down real good and take a run and dive on it. <laughs> and you slide right right across the hall into the other end. Uh, I mean, you know, you got all of us and we're about half in the bag trying to do carrier landings. The only bad thing about that is if there's a door jam around somewhere and your shoulder gets hooked into it, that's that's a bad day. Yeah. There was a lot of yeah. things like that, that we did after work that we would do um, until, like the old saying, you know, until you, someone gets hurt, then it's over. And there was always somebody yeah. getting hurt. Yeah, that's unfortunate. And then the whole hazing thing, you can't say that anymore. Oh, my gosh, they'd have you, nope. they'd have you locked yeah. up. But you got to understand, I mean, and that's what, I don't know, I guess that's what really bothers me because the, the military should just be separate. I mean, it. You know, hazing's fine if it's done in a in a good manner. I mean, it's the rite of passage, and the way I looked at it, I got hazed a lot. And so, and I know uh, anybody that did the stuff that that you did or that I did, you know, you get hazed, and that's just part of it. Um, yeah, you would have, I, it, and it was controlled. Uh, you would have uh, the first sergeant would be the judge, as it were, and then you would have an attorney, and the other person have an attorney, but it didn't matter because the first shirt was always going to. You would never win. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, funny how that works. But uh, huh. so, when was that? When was all this program de- declassified? I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was somewhere around 2006, I believe. 2006. I, I've got the I've got the first book that was written about the squadron, um, and it was written right after that. But I haven't. I, I should have gone in and looked at the date on that, but it was somewhere around that, I believe. Gotcha. And so, what, after, after it was declassified, when do you know what, when they were put, added to the, the Air Force Museum? Uh, yeah, I was actually there um, when we did that. Uh, that was in September of 2016, and um, we held a, um, a Red Eagle reunion at the museum when they were putting that. Uh, display up. So I don't know if that's the actual date. I mean, that that's the reason we had it there. So I'm pretty sure September 16th is when it was. So what did they do with all the equipment after they, you know, shut down the program, declassified it and all? Or I guess once they shut down the program, what did they do with all the equipment, with the MIGs and stuff? I know um, I had left by the time they shut down. Um, of course, I just went, I went to a different organization still up there. But um, when I left, we put we put everything in hangers, and um, we just like put it to bed. And since that time, I I really don't know. Uh, I mean, some of the assets went to uh, museums, uh, different different museums, and some of the equipment went with it. Um, and I don't know if there's anything left or what, because um, I got out. And once you're debriefed, you can't. There's no way to. I I couldn't even talk to anybody. Yeah, and so I guess kind of on the on that equipment aspect of it, was something I forgot to ask. I meant to ask was so like with the parts. Did you all have them manufactured here, or how did you get the parts for them? We would. Um, there was sometimes we would go on part runs um, when we would go pick up an asset, say, and you get what you get. It's like you can't order something, but if there's a if there's something we can get our hands on, we did. Primarily what we did, uh, we had machinists and sheet metal people up there that could make anything. It was amazing what they could do. 
And there were times where we had pumps, um, uh, we had accumulators. We there was a lot of things that we needed that we we didn't have, so we made it. Um, yeah. Our uh, the people we had in, in machine and sheet metal and all that were were pretty amazing people, and um, we would just take um, take an item and you and you just make it. You remanufacture everything, and uh, that's the way we worked the jet. We take it apart together and write it up and that's how we that's how we did everything hmm. so. yeah that's so you're kind of like in a sense you're reverse engineering it we did reverse i was trying to think of that word actually but i'm getting old and my words aren't there anymore <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh that's fine i'm getting old too and my words are never there so but uh <laughs> yeah so man that's really interesting and I, i'm assuming you know, I mean, well, everybody, everybody in, in, in these kind of units, whether it be Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, anything, in, you know, in a top secret unit, in a tier one unit or a high profile, you know, maintenance unit like this. I, I mean, it's all top tier people. So, yeah, I mean, it would make sense that you, it, people could make anything that they you needed. Yep, that's what we did. That's the way we survived. Yeah. Well, we're going to take uh, one last break here. Word from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll close this up and uh, with uh, Jerry Fields. And I got a couple more questions. Hopefully, they don't put him on the spot. We'll be right back. <laughs> You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggin. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifb.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifb.org, and click on VDAC. Welcome back to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggins. 
everybody. Welcome back. Wounded but not broken. Uh, here with Jerry Fields again, talking about uh, his assignments with the Air Force in uh, in and around Nevada. Jerry, so when you were on this base, I'm, you know, you come in on a Tuesday and you, you said you stay four or five days or whatever you're staying. So I'm assuming you have quite a bit of downtime. It's like it's a it's a. I'm assuming you're working eight hour shifts, maybe ten hour shifts. Is that right? Yes. So what did you do in your in your time off? Um, like I said, they they built that camp for us um, down away from the base, and we had um, we had a, a full gym in there. We could lift weights and do all that. There was a swimming pool we could do. We had a bar in there, which I later became the bartender just uh, because I knew everybody. And um, so we were when we would hang out after work. Uh, th- that's what we'd do. I um, I personally. I was running 10 miles a day and I was uh, lifting weights after and, and a lot of us did that just to keep ourselves. Yeah. Busy. Yeah. And yeah, uh, but so we stay out of trouble. That was, nowadays you'd be playing PlayStation. to stay out of trouble. Yeah. I bet. Nowadays you'd be playing PlayStation probably. Oh, I imagine we didn't do anything <laughs> like that then. Yeah, I know. So the a difference between when you were working on the MIG uh, the big program as opposed to the the stealth program was the stealth program much more secure or were they equal in that in that uh, sense of security and sense of secretism? Um, I would say that the 117 was more secure. Um, the um, the way they had the hangars locked down, security posted, and some but early on, later not so much. But um, I know I entered a hangar one day and. I had the whole world on me because evidently I did something wrong. So it was, um, I, I would say the 117, very much more secure. Right. Were you, were you ever a part of launching one at night and kind of what went into that? Uh, yes. I mean, I was up there. Um, like I said, we flew at night and, um, I right. wasn't there a lot at night because, uh, I was running one of the sections and later I, I was running EMS uh, so I had to be there in the daytime so we could prep the jets, get them going so they could fly at night. But, but yeah, there was many times I was up there uh, launching at night. And it's just, I mean, the launch is just like all the launches uh, in, on any jet, per, per se. It was uh, when I would get there and, and we would we would launch, um, it didn't feel any different than anything else. Yeah, except for I'm assuming everything was just completely blacked out and you just saw two, two uh, yep. afterburner fire engines taking off until it got to altitude. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So another question, you know, ever, how in that whole area of how everything. So in, in, when you were there, was that whole, was the whole alien thing an issue, or was it uh, was it talked about or mentioned or you know you know like it, was, it is today? We mentioned it all the time up there. Uh, we were we would always joke around about it, and um, we would. Um, you were talking about what do you do when you get off work? Well, before they built the camp down the road, we would get off work and we'd say, okay, let's go to the, everybody had like a patio on their um, front of their trailer. And we would sit there and watch the lights in the sky at night and say, see what, let's see what we can see tonight. Because you would, you know, you'd see lights flying around that didn't look normal, but it was, um, it's also when you're on the ground looking at lights flying, you're not sure what angle they're really doing. At nighttime, you're just watching lights, but it it appeared to be very strange, and we we were always making jokes about that. Of course, yeah. we had been drinking as well. 
<laughs> Hopefully not some of the alcohol that cooled the MiG-21. No, we didn't drink that. We, we stayed away from that. <laughs> All right. So, Jerry, is there anything that you anything you'd like to say about the the Red Hats or Red Eagles that, that you know maybe has not been said? I know there's been a couple of great books written, um, but you know, and I I, know, I understand that some of your uh, your fellow fellow soldiers may be listening in tonight. You know, is there anything you'd like to say to about it or feel like something well, that needs to be said uh, that has never been said? Well, it was, um, of course, a pleasure. It was an honor to do what I did. I, I, I loved it, and we all did. Everybody that was up there that was involved in the program was, um, I mean, they were amazing people and just the best of the best, and uh, we all did our work. And sometimes it's like we're reading each other's minds. We didn't have to ask, like, I wouldn't have to ask for tools. I wouldn't have to ask anybody what are you doing? What are you doing? We all knew what we were doing. Each other were doing. And the, it was, it was, um, I don't know. It was, it was the best maintenance program I've, I've ever been in. And it's just because of the quality of the people and the aircraft, I believe, um, as far as they went, I think the, the MIGs when they were designed and built, um, I think they were pretty much done as throwaway airplanes. I don't think they ever flew the kind of hours we did because we had our phase programs, which I don't think they did, if I can remember right, uh, at that time anyway. And um, so we would um, work these jets and fly them. The pilots were amazing. They would, uh, I know the first time I saw one go, I was um, I was in crash recovery and I'm sitting on the, on the runway and I'm watching this guy get in this aircraft and take off. And I'm thinking, man, that's a Russian aircraft. He just got in it and left. It's uh, I was so totally amazed at that. And um, and the pilots would come out, and as they would um, approach the jet, I was used to um, being regular Air Force, and the pilots come out, and they do their walk around, and, um, and they check everything and do all that before they get in the cockpit, and then we strap them in. And um, these guys, I was out there, and I said, uh, sir, um, are you doing a walk around? And he said, is the jet ready? And I said, yes. And he, and he told me, you know more about it than I do. He said, if you tell me it's ready, I'm gone. And, and that's the way they did it. They, they just got in and left. They, um, they said, we trust you. You know more about this aircraft than I do as far as maintenance goes. You fix it, and I'll fly it. And um, the trust between everyone, the pilots to us, us to pilots, um, was something I, had, I hadn't seen in the Air Force. Not that it was bad. It was just that as far as the pilots trusting us was um, they didn't question anything. They just flew the jets. They said, you take care of it and I'll fly it. And that's what they did. So, um, yeah, I think just to say it was the best job I ever had. It was the best people I ever worked with. And we, I'm putting the, um, me and a group of us are putting together another reunion coming up in November and um, just can't wait to see everybody again. It's, it's just amazing how we've, stuck together. I, I retired in 92 and I'm still in contact with these guys all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, when you're, you know, especially in special mission units like that, you know, number one, everybody's a professional and you're there for a reason. You're there because you're the cream of the crop. So it's, it's natural that everybody's going to trust everybody. I mean, it's just, you know, pretty much in any special mission unit you're in, I mean, you're expected to be a professional, you're expected to do your job and, and, uh, and, you know, and when you're working that close with people for that long, I mean, they you know, they become family. I mean, I'm sure that's what, that's yeah. what November will be. 
November for you all will just be family getting back together. Yeah, I um one story I can tell you here, um when they opened uh, they put us in the uh, museum in Dayton, the Air Force Museum, uh we did our reunion there and um the um there was um our our guest speaker, it was a four-star general. And um so one of our commanders uh, told us all, you know, now you know the general's going to be speaking, and yes, he was one of our pilots. He was one of us, but he's a four-star general, so give him respect. And I'm like, so we were all talking, you know, are you serious? Of course we're going to give him respect. So then he later came and got me, and he said, Jerry, come on over. I want you to meet the general. And I walked over there, and he was talking to some other people, so I'm standing there waiting. And he turned around, and he saw me, and he said, Jerry, and he grabbed me, and he hugged me because he had he was, he was had crashed uh, a MiG-23, and I'm the one that picked him up. And um, and he said the last time I saw you was was that day when I I picked him up, and um, yeah, he was just amazed. I, I was amazed. So then I turned around and I asked uh, our other commander, our last commander. I said, you know, you told us to be careful and be respectful. I said, what do you do when a general hugs you? He said, hug him back. <laughs> I'm like, and I yeah. did. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, that was yeah, that, I mean, that was good. Just the. The camaraderie that you make, uh, and that's that's one of the greatest things to me about the military. It's what I miss the most is the camaraderie and the you know the brothers and sisters. And I mean, it's just like your extended family. I mean, you live and you you do everything next to them. You know, especially when you're deployed or or training. I mean, it's just like a, it's like an extended family. And that's you know, it's just not like that in the civilian world. So it's, for me, that's one of the best things that that I took from the military. I mean, you know, you, you look to your left and right, yeah. and you know, you know that person will do anything for you. They'll step in front of a bullet for you if if need be, and you do the same and for them, and that's you, what uh, makes it special. That's right. And then after you do that, you retire, and it's gone. It, or that's the way it feels. It's, um, I know when I retired, I um, I got <laughs> out, and I was like, I, I went back in. But, um, you know, I got hurt, so I couldn't get back in. But um, I just retired. And uh, when you get out, you're at the top of your game, and then you're nothing. You know, you're starting over. It's especially yeah, the way I did. Yeah, that was. I got. I was injured, and I had my life set up to work on jets the rest of my life. That I had to have a couple of back surgeries, and that was the end of that. So they couldn't. Um, yep. That was done. I'm exactly the same way. I, I think that. Um, yeah, it, it's just not like that in the civilian world. It's not. It's every man for themselves, and I just wasn't used to that. It was the hardest transition I've ever had to do in my life, going from the military back to uh, being a civilian and working working alongside of people yeah. that, you know, it, it's tough. And I, same, I, I had a bunch of back surgeries, thirty eight, and uh, thirty eight. I only I only had two, but I lost the use of my left leg. And uh, when I did that, I was I had a job that I was going to do with um, Lockheed, but they wanted me to go to Georgia, and I wanted to stay in Las Vegas with my son. So then I got another opportunity up to work with Northrop, and then they are, they're like, no, we can't take this because there's no way you can walk on top of an airplane with a leg that doesn't work, you know. So so I was just, like, done. I thought I had everything figured out, but I didn't. Yeah. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason, but uh, glad you're here, and I'm glad you came on tonight to tell this story. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, I'm uh, honored to be here, and I hope I was able to – answer some questions or at least make the show fairly decent. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You you answered what you could. I know it's it's very tough when, uh, you know, being in a unit like that, the what you can and can't say, and and I completely understand that, and I hope everybody else does too. Um, But it's just, you know. I've I've talked to some of the guys up there, even after the book's written, you know, and they're like, I'm still afraid to say anything. And I'm like, well, we know we can say these things because it's already written. But there's a lot of guys who won't talk about any of it right now. They just won't even do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's understandable. I mean, you, you know, you, you, they, you know, that's, that kind of stuff exists for a reason and it exists, uh, you know, I, later on it, it all becomes unclassified and we can know about it. But, you know, when you, when you stand there and you take that oath, um, you know, that's a, especially for something like that, we just got to know it's, uh, as a nation, it's got our best interests at heart and there's things that we just don't need to know. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, all right, Jerry, that's uh, okay. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and I, um, uh, after I left the, the program, the Red Eagles, and I went to the uh, 117s, I took um, 117s to Germany and Paris, and I did the Paris Air Show, and then we did static shows in Germany. And I'm driving around Germany, going to different pubs and things like that, and I ran into my Red Eagle buddies. And I said, uh, hey, what are you guys doing here? And they just looked at me and said, you know, we can't answer that. So it's like, once you're debriefed, you're out, you know. I'm like, what are you guys doing? No, no, you can't ask that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's, and that's, and you, and you were probably fine with that. You were probably like, yep. Oh, yeah. That's just the way it is. Most yeah. Time. Well, that's all the time we got for tonight, Jerry. I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, I really appreciate you sharing the stories and what you could tell us. Uh, it was very intriguing for me. I'm going to go back and re-listen to it because I, mean, I was taking notes the whole time, but but uh, I'm just I'm kind of an aviation nerd anyway, and I, I love to hear that stuff. But uh, I really appreciate yeah, you taking the time. It would be really great if you had one of our pilots that could answer some of the other questions uh, that I that I could, for either because I don't know or because I. I didn't know exactly what I could say, but uh, yeah. So you got maintenance side, maybe the um, pilot side would, would tighten up that whole program. Absolutely. If you can get, if you can steer me in the right direction, I'd love to. I'd love to have a pilot on. I've got a couple of people I'll talk to. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, guys. All right, Jerry. You have a good night. You too. All right, everyone. I just want to say. Um, I just want to reiterate. Uh, when you're talking about, uh, about these kind of units, whether it be Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, there's just certain things that uh, that we that we do or our government does that, you know, it's, we just have to know it's in our best interest and um, it's keeping us safe at night. And so I understand that everybody wants to know the unknown, but there's just things we don't need to know. But anyways, I really appreciate everybody tuning in tonight. Uh, we'll see you next week again. And uh, God bless you. God bless the United States of America. God bless our troops. Have a good night. You're listening to Wounded But Not Broken with host Patrick Scroggins. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you're going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. 
contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio broadcast for over 15 years. High quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. VDAC an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities, empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifv.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifv.org, and click on VDAC. CBN. Veterans Broadcast Network brings you Wounded But Not Broken, hosted by Patrick Scroggin. It lies within you to conquer your greatest challenges. Patrick tackles the stories of how others faced unthinkable odds and then at a pivotal moment, a change occurred within them that gave them the strength, attitude, and direction to excel beyond the greatest expectations. Listen every week and learn how it is possible to defeat the impossible. 